Courage doesn't mean you don't get afraid. Courage means you don't let fear stop you. So my advice is give it a go, you only live once. Welcome to a brand new episode of Starts at the Top, our podcast about leadership, digital culture and change. I'm Zoe Ammer. And I'm Paul Thomas. Our podcast brings you interviews with leaders from the public, private and third sector who are using digital to navigate uncertainty and forge a path to the future. In this episode, we speak to Avril Chester, Chief Technology Officer at REBA, the Royal Institute of British Architects and founder of Cancer Central a conversation that left us somewhat lost for words. I'm sure you'll find uh, Avril as inspiring as Paul and I did. Yeah, I I really enjoyed our chat with Avril, an inspiring woman and an inspiring listen. So we're really excited to share that with you. And of course, we're hoping this episode is released on April the 22nd, which if you are listening now, of course, you'll know is Earth Day. So great that we were able to speak to Avril uh, ahead of such an important date in the calendar. And before we get to Avril, as always, there are a couple of news items that we wanted to discuss. Um, and as an Arsenal fan, I'm well used to having at least one eye fixed on a worrying league table. And Zoe, today we have news of another political leader going feet first into the subject of public sector workers returning to the office and using a dubious league table to back up his story. Yes, indeed. Uh, so Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, has been saying that civil servants need to get back to the office. Uh, it's not the first time we've had this line from government. It does seem to be repeatedly briefed in. Uh, and there have been lots of news stories about this over the, the last six months or so, if not before. Um, but this feels like uh, there's a bit of a, a step change, a bit of an escalation, if you will, of that line. Um, because Rees Mogg is saying that civil servants need to get back to the office. Uh, he wants, in his words, to make the uh, use of the government state to be as efficient as possible Uh, and this has been causing all sorts of uh, debate on Twitter. Uh, There was a thread which we will link to in the show notes from someone who pointed out uh, that government is obviously an employer uh, much like a lot of other organisations who are also struggling with recruiting the right staff uh, and making sure that their workforce is as inclusive as possible and taking a hard line on getting everyone back to the office is obviously going to have an impact on both of those things. Um, so I'd be interested to see how this one turns out, Paul. What do you think? Yeah, well, at the moment, it seems to be a sort of a tug of war between um, the, the, the Daily Mail away in on it. I think it was front page news on, on the Daily Mail, which uh, says it says it all, I guess. And that league table, um, just looking here, that the Department for Education had just a quarter of its staff going in each day on average. Similar numbers for Department of Work and Pensions, which is 27 percent, and the Foreign and Commonwealth and Development Office, 31 percent. And then at the other end of the table, you know, the star pupils of the, of the Department for International Trade are up to seventy three percent. I think it's I think it's dangerous when you start to put things like this in a in a league table, um, particularly as you say, if you are looking uh, from a recruitment point of view. And of course, they do fit in with every single other recruiter out there, don't they? Who are all offering um, through necessity and through uh, the evolution of the, the workplace that we've seen in the last three or four. Two or three years, sorry. This this huge shift to, to flexible working and home working, and and we still in this country seem to be wanting to put numbers to it the whole time. 
Um, you know, I'm going to spend three days in the office and two at home. I'm going to spend one day in the office or I'm going to work a nine day week. You know, there's, there's these sorts of things keep coming through. And I'm not necessarily sure it's always about the numbers. I think it's about working flexibly and working in the right way for you, the teams that you work with and the job that needs to get done. This stuff just isn't isn't helpful at all. Exactly. I think that where you're working feels largely irrelevant in many ways um, as as something to measure compared to what you're achieving Uh, and I I think that time in the office isn't necessarily a metric that's indicative of productivity uh, or success in role and I think you're right I think pitting different departments against each other uh, feels like something that is quite divisive and it's obviously interesting to see this data and to look at the comparison But I don't think the right conclusions have been drawn from this because these different departments are going to have different needs and different reasons for Mm. people being in the office and different reasons for working, working at home. Yeah, I guess the big question is how many days does Rhys Mogg spend in the office versus at home? And really, do we care? (laughs) Maybe we should have him on the podcast. Jacob Rhys Mogg, if you're listening and like to come on, you'd be very welcome. Oh, I can hear all our listeners deserting ship as we speak. Um, another big thing in the news this week is the news that um, there's emerged in the last few days that Elon Musk has made an offer to buy Twitter for $43 billion, which is, you know, small change. Um, this is very much still in the balance. So I expect we'll be talking about this over the course of the, the next few episodes and it will come through. But there's there's so much to unpack here, I think. Um it's a conversation about money, about power, about control. Um, but Twitter, I think I think a few years ago, we could have quite safely sort of said, well, who cares? It's only Twitter. You know, these, these things come and they go. But the role that Twitter plays in the, the global news agenda is such a strong one. Um, and the conversation that he seems to be leading with about freedom, freedom of speech um, and you know who uh, the, the 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 openness um, of the algorithms and things like that on on Twitter mean that regardless of whether it happens or not, we're we're destined for for big change. So uh, me and my wife were just having a discussion the other day about well, what would life be like without Twitter? Um, but I think it's one that's going to run and run. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, you and I were talking before the recording uh, about whether he's even if he's he he is able to launch more I think is now potentially looking like a hostile takeover of Twitter whether he would actually be allowed to do it Um, because my reading of the way things are going in in the states is that the Biden administration are actually looking to um, try and lessen big tech's power so I just don't know whether Elon Musk would be allowed to own Tesla and also as you say this organization that's effectively a, a, a publisher and incredible influential in the the news agenda so I suppose that's that's one thing but yeah slightly worrying times for sure yeah and we'll we'll follow it and we'll keep coming back to it I'm sure but um I'm I'm really interested to see it as a as a sort of huge advocate of Twitter when uh, I joined it in 2008 I've slowly seen the the platform go through changes that haven't necessarily suited me and I don't spend as much time on it but um I'm, I'm not sure that the changes or the, the, the huge changes that might come um, if Elon Musk was to get his hands on it are the sorts of things that I, I want to see. But let's see. We'll, we'll follow it and we'll, um, we'll keep the conversation going on here. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Absolutely. One to keep an eye on. 
Now for our conversation with Avril Chester. This conversation was such a treat and a real privilege. I've known Avril for several years and I've been a huge admirer of her work. Uh, she's done fantastic work at Reba, uh, where she's really started to move the conversation forward about how tech can tackle climate change. So we spoke to her about that uh, and also her journey as a leader as well. Avril Chester is an award-winning technology entrepreneur, experienced CTO, author, podcast host and cancer thriver. She is Chief Technology Officer at Reba, the Royal Institute of British Architects, and she's also founder of Cancer Central. Avril, welcome to Starts at the Top. Thank you for having me. We're so happy to have you here today. Um, I've known you for some time and always, always admired the work that you do and the very different multifaceted aspects of the way you're using digital to tackle all of these big societal challenges. And I think that comes across a lot in the, the different roles uh, that you've, you've undertaken. And I know we're going to be talking about all of those different things here today. I wanted to start by talking about some of the really groundbreaking work that you've done at Reba about a tech carbon footprint and how an organisation can get started with tracking that and tackling that as well. So can we start just by talking about why does that matter and, and, and what is a tech carbon footprint? Thanks, Zoe. I'm a big fan of yours as well. <laughs> so oh. it's just lovely <laughs> to be here. And, you know, why does tech carbon impact matter? I feel is something that we're starting to more slowly talk about, but it's um, it's certainly not as prevalent as other industries you more associate, you know, with with carbon impact. You know, certainly when we talk about the world of architecture and the built environment, you talk about travel and airplanes. And it was really when I joined the RIBA, obviously we were doing work to support uh, towards the you know the climate challenge of 2030 and I started thinking surely as a tech department there's something else we can do um, what can we do what does that mean and that's where that investigation started happening and if I may I've got sort of two quotes here which really starts to put it into perspective I mean the heart of the city recently did a study and they said a one-hour video call between two people has the same emissions as traveling 10 kilometers by train so for those of you who prefer it in miles, that's just over six miles, which is quite incredible, really, because you think I'm not traveling. Therefore, I must be saving on my carbon impact. But actually, we're using electricity. We're sending data. We're doing lots of stuff here. And, and one of my um, absolutely fun quotes that I'm sure a number of you have heard me say this uh, over the timing. It is from the Shift Project and they're a French think tank. And it really really puts the whole thing in perspective for me. And it was this quote that got me started. Um, and they, they basically said, online video streaming in 2018 was responsible for nearly 300 million tonnes of CO2. That's equivalent to what a country the size of Spain releases. Let me pause and take that back. We're talking about 2018. We're talking pre-lockdown. We're talking pre-Disney+. Plus. So that blew my mind already before we then went into this lockdown and started to consume really heavily, obviously, online video services. And I thought, hang on a minute, there must be something we can do here. Absolutely. And what you made me think of when we were uh, talking about that just now is we're recording this on the day the uh, energy prices are going to be 
hiked um, as of midnight tonight. Uh, so actually, there's that implication as well, isn't isn't there? Along with the environmental challenge. Very true, and I think all of us are trying to quickly get our meter readings, aren't we? <laughs> I'll be doing that right after this call. Yeah, Michael. exactly. Thank you for the reminder. Yeah, reminder, get your meter reading. Yeah, we did it this morning. Absolutely. Yeah, good. Excellent. Um, good to be uh, remind our, our listeners of that. Although it's probably going out after they should have done the meter to read them. But we like to be helpful. They can look back uh, fondly. Yes, they can do. Absolutely. Um, so we're all considering the impact of energy and obviously this is manifesting itself in the way we're interacting with, with tech. What do you think are the, the key things that leaders need to be aware of? Because I suppose one of the challenges here is it feels quite daunting, doesn't it? Where do you begin when you're trying to measure your tech carbon footprint? It is hugely daunting. And you know, for for anyone listening, it's actually a bit of a shout out as well, to be honest with you, because I'm, I'm going to take it from the angle of the technology department. Well, it could be you're the one tech person in that small organizational startup or charity. Uh, It could be a part of a larger technology department. But for those that don't work for technology organizations, um, you know, there's lots of things to look at. You could have a physical server room, which we do at Viva. So what does that consume? We talk about all the cooling and everything else that we need to do. Then you've got your actual devices side of things. Then you've got your cloud consumption you know, depending on which cloud model you've gone with, they're a bit easier to find, but you need to add all this stuff together. Then obviously you've got your applications that you use in the cloud. So you need to start looking at that, how many how many people are using those applications. Um, and then you've got the transference of data. Um, you know, when we're in meetings or we're transferring stuff or we're working on a joint doc and we, you know, we don't, we don't, uh, you know, use the same one and because we're such in such a habit attaching it to the email and sending it on. Got to get out of that habit. Um, you know, all those things. Actually, if if we were to ask uh, a number of leaders in this space uh, or any of the engineers, where would you start to calculate? I bet you anything will calculate it differently. Um, so, you know, certainly, you know, for, for me, I'm really keen like we do for the airline industry, there's a broad brush calculation. So, you know, when you when you go, at least you can work out what your carbon footprint is and you can do something about it. What I'm kind of asking uh, asking the audience really is, is how do we standardise the way we calculate all the different facets of technology? Let's not make it overcomplicated. What's the broad brush calculations? So we can start the same. And then we can start to see as well as leaders which ones we need to hone in on first. I mean, I wouldn't know which one of the lists to start with. Um, I'm trying uh, and the team and I are working through that together. Uh, But we want to spend the time where it's going to provide the maximum impact. That makes sense, doesn't it? Especially when there are so many different chunks of this that you need to kind of... um, um, you know, so slice off and then tackle that way. Um, so how have you gone about tackling this challenge at, at Reba then? Well, this is a perfect segue. So I love that, uh, you know, segue. So what we've done is we've created a tech carbon impact wiki. Uh, and it's literally that. We The reason why we put it as a wiki is so people can directly contribute. So what are we learning how are we changing? What's happening from a supplier relations perspective? And that supply chain, we've got a great blog from um, a gentleman called Rob Alexander. Um, you know, just sort of mention it. Has anyone heard of the Chancery Lane project or the Sustainable Procurement Pledge? 
have a look. You know, these are the things we can learn from. And, and I just really would like to encourage people. What are you doing? How are you doing it? You know, we've put paragraphs in our job descriptions. We've shared what those are so other people can pick it up and amend and, and use how you see fit. But we'd like to learn. I'd like to learn how to calculate it. I'd like to learn what people are doing. You know, is what's the alternative to offsetting? What do we need to do? I mean, it's even just like, you know, when you're at home, switching off your devices off standby. You know, at the end of the day, do you turn your little switch off at the wall? You know, that just really helps. I know it sort of feels quite small, but all this stuff can build up, whether you're in the office building or whether actually you're working from home. Of course, then that's an extra complication. So what we're doing at Reba is we're really just trying to create an area where we can gather information, learn from each other and constantly share. Can you just tell us what you have put in your, your job descriptions? What What's in there for people to, to sort of um, grab hold of? So what we've put into our contracts is the RIBA is committed to supporting worldwide decarbonation efforts and our technology directorate's role is to facilitate and drive efforts to minimise the RIBA's carbon impact through all our technology services and initiatives. So it's quite a small sentence, but what's great about it is we're all a part of this and every single role within the department is to look at how we can improve and do things better. So that's an expectation when people join. Um, so how much harder has that got for you and for other leaders and other organisations since people have left the office and started working from home? Because surely now um, it's more difficult to measure and employees are a bit more responsible for their own emissions. It is. <laughs> and you're absolutely spot on for, you know, they, we can measure within the office. We can measure in terms of usage. Um you know, one could argue, you know, and again, until we sort of start to settle on this as, a, as an industry, um, you know, one could argue that you accessing those applications from your home is still really for the purpose of work and therefore, you know, still contributes towards it. So for me, I would include wherever you are, you know, whether you're sort of at home on, on the travel or whatever, because it's still about that access to information. It's still about that access to the application um, or service that you're actually doing. And have we see, started to see, I think we've discussed this before, haven't we, Zoe, about employees and employers starting to look at how they can incentivize employees to sign up to green energy contracts, for example. Um, you know, I'm just thinking today, Daphne and my my wife and I are knocking around the house together with the heating on because it's snowing outside, you know, but there's not four of us here who would normally benefit from that heating. So there's all sorts of different things that we can start to think of as, as employees or, or, or self-employed people. Yeah, I think that makes complete sense. And um, I think it links to one of the other points that you and I have, have talked a bit about Afro, about the role of the supply chain and how you're considering the environmental impact of tech within that. Can you share a bit more about what you've done in that area? I think the first thing is to have the conversation. I mean, you mentioned earlier, it's such a big topic. Where on earth do you start? You start by having the conversation. You know, with your existing partners. So how are you going about it? What are you doing? Making sure that their value set matches yours. But also when you go through RFP processes or picking new suppliers, 
actually make that a form of the process, make that a judging criteria. You know what, we take this really seriously. We know you might not have all the answers like we don't have all the answers and that's okay, but we'd like to understand what you're doing about it and how you're learning and how you're improving and how we can learn from each other because it is about partnerships at the end of the day, most of them are, unless it's a consumer pool service. Now you might find, you know, if you buy that consumable service, if they're not committing to anything and there's an alternative, you know what, maybe that's maybe that's a direction you want to take um, because those values mean most to you. And how hard is that conversation to have with suppliers? Are you finding that, that most suppliers have got the data to hand or do they have to go away and find out? Or, you know, who, who's, who's, who's leading on this? Who's the most sort of freely open with this, um, with the numbers? Well, cloud providers are way ahead than anyone else because I think they they certainly got their stats or they'll have a look specific to you. Um, but all the conversations I've had, there's not been one that I've been quite shocked at. Everybody wants to do something. Um, and, you know, some people have openly admitted, look, we want to do something. We're not quite sure which direction to go with first. And so maybe we'll work with you on picking what's most important to you, which I've really appreciated. You know, don't pretend that you're doing loads of stuff if you're not, but tell me that, you know, we can do things together. Uh, but certainly um, those that are around that infrastructure cloud side of things, they're, they're way ahead um, than, than anybody else. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Because actually I'm starting to see some charities go through um, a very comparable process in inclusion. So really starting to think about the role of the supply chain and learning together, um, looking at how the team work, who's on the team, what their values are. So what you just said about shared values really resonated with us. Uh, And that reminded me of a conversation that we had, I think last season, if I've got that right, Paul, um, with Ursula, who was at the British Heart Foundation at that point, who was talking about how this relationship with suppliers has got to evolve to be one that's about shared outcomes and, and shared values. Do you think looking at the environmental impact of tech together, can that kind of strengthen and, and reinforce that shift? Very much so. We've got to work together. You know, this is the only way we, we can um, learn what we need to do, learn what we need to focus on, think of new ways uh, of adopting um, but first of all, it's about that awareness. People just think because we're using technology, we're not spending any uh, of the carbon impact, which is an incorrect assumption, as mentioned at the start. And if I may say just very quickly, a bit of a shout out to Abigail the Google and Carolyn Morgan, who's helped with the start of the wiki. They were instrumental to it. Absolutely. Um, and what you've got me thinking about there is obviously lots of organisations are working some form of hybrid working model now. Is there some duplication there? Do you think that's worse for the environment? I know it's a really hard question because we, we we don't have the data yet, do we? But I wonder whether we have to really think through how, how that plays out in that context as well. I think it's a great question. I bet you someone somewhere is looking at it. Uh, you know, there's uh, I'm, I'm getting things sent to me all the time of, oh, where are you aware of this? They've been looking into that. Um, but I think it's... Um, There's an awareness about personal consumption as well. Obviously, we're talking about this in in a work commitment scenario. Um, But let's very briefly talk about it in a a personal situation, because a number of us have mobile phones. 
a number of uh, part of different social media outlets and therefore share videos and you know photos and things like that that transference of data and the question is do you really need 25 copies of that same photo that's stored in various different places um or you know 60 different versions of that video and all the previous drafts and they're there's the stuff that obviously continuously to consume, if especially if you're storing it in your own personal cloud, you're just building upon the needs that you've got and therefore spending uh, more um, you know, consumption. So I do think there's a personal angle here as well as the, the organisation. There's something about that shift in behaviour, isn't there? If we can start at, at home um, and really embed that change, then maybe it's easier to do in the workplace. Well, I think so. it is. You know, I think the workplace. You know, there there is a there is a sense that you can do something about it. Whereas as a consumer, you're often um, still fairly restricted in your choices. And I'm just thinking about our supermarket shop, for example. And we've I've just made a smoothie this morning, and the blueberries came from Chile. And and you start to look at that, and you think, well, hold, hold on, what's the carbon footprint of those berries arriving in my in my um, in my house? And you can't tell. You know, from the from the receipt, from the the app that I order it on, there's none of that information. There's all the other information there about country, potential countries of origin, where it comes from, ingredients, all of those sorts of things are there, but none of the information about the the carbon footprint or the offsetting. And I know that there's a sort of supermarket uh, table. I think Lidl will come out on top of just looking at it now. Lidl at the, the top of the the rankings. Iceland down at the bottom. Um, but they, you know, they have a shops full of freezers. For, so, so you know, that, that's the, the sort of thing you've got to start thinking about. We started this conversation talking about Netflix and Disney Plus and, and all of those services. And, and, you know, are people willing to make decisions about not watching stuff in HD, just watching stuff in standard definition, just to, to keep that, that number down? And I guess the, the, the really sort of quite depressing um, answer to that is probably not at this stage. It's, the, it's, it's all about offsetting, not changing my habit. It's about how do I then offset that? There are trade-offs to make. I think that's the really hard thing, isn't it, about tackling the, the carbon footprint of, of anything, really, you know, whether it's not flying off for, for mini breaks so often but also things like I imagine a work context I love that stat that you and I have talked about previously at for of if you keep your mobile phone for, for four years as opposed to two and a half then it does cut the carbon footprint down but there'll be people out there I'm sure there'll be directors of IT listening where they say well that will make my staff less productive because this will be a bit slower or whatever um is there anything you would advise leaders about how to make that kind of trade-off because it's it's a tricky one isn't it it is uh and when we all get personally challenged it's like like a budge here but maybe not on this one um you know we're all you know i'm going to hold my hands up for some of the stuff i am you know nowhere near um a, a really good advocate i try my hardest and then i turn around and failed on something miserably that particular day or or, or whatever and you know, and, and particularly with lockdown ending, oh, my goodness, going to another country, how divine is that? You know, the thought of that, just escaping and, and learning again. So I think there, there is a balance, but at the same time, there's a collective balance uh, because, you know, the, the planet is being affected. You know, the, the scientists and all the stats speak for themselves. I saw this absolutely superb 
um, little sort of video that I won't be able to describe it very well, but it's this little circle that the kind of then changes over the years in terms of the carbon output and where the danger zone is and the otolite. Oh, it was absolutely superb. It's clearly happening. We clearly have to do stuff. But I think we just need to start focusing on where is those biggest impacts. And that's why I'm trying to work out if I may take it back to that technology side of things. Where should we all be focusing the most? Because that the biggest impact is what uh, we want to drive to, which is why standardizing our calculation altogether is incredibly important. Definitely. And it's a real cross-sector issue isn't it is there anything that you'd like to say to organizations who might be listening from the public sector or or the corporate world how can they help you and vice versa definitely put your information into the wiki uh that's just the whole point you know we want it to grow we want to learn we want to see what you're doing we want to um, understand what's going on um, and it's just one single place we can all go to rather than hearsay or someone because someone knows something else I mean we're very blessed with our networks but you don't get to hear about everything it's just information everywhere let's just consolidate let's try and work together um, and if anyone's building this calculator please I mean the entirety of the calculator not just one bit for a website or whatever I mean to try and do that if not anyone wants to work with me on it <laughs> I am so here and so contactable. Amazing. Thank you. Um, Paul, do you want to ask the questions about Cancer Central? Well, yeah, I was going to just say that there, there seems to be a, a theme here in the work that you do about um, creating that one definitive source of, of information. And I think it's um, it's 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 um, it's something that uh, leaps out from your profile. But yeah, tell us a bit more about Cancer Central and what you were trying to, uh, what, you've, what you've achieved, I guess, but you know, trying to achieve, achieved uh, with the development of Cancer Central. Thank you, Paul. I love that seamlessness there. Absolutely <laughs> brilliant. Um, and if I may, I did quickly research a stat you know, if you just literally type into Google, um, you know, I, I very quick look at sort of seed scientific and it says every day we create roughly 2.5 quintillion. I hope I'm saying that right. You don't get to say that often. Quintillion bytes of data. That's back in October 2021. Um, so that central place, that pulling information together, that trusted source is really important to me because how do you wade through it all? And I would argue the most important topic here is health, um, because I would argue health is the only thing we've got in common. We'll all have various differences, but obviously our health is incredibly important. Um, and Cancer Central came through my journey. You know, being a technologist, I like to think that I could search. <laughs> obviously good. Um, so how do I make it easier? Um, and we've been on this absolutely phenomenal journey. Um, and the, the idea being behind Cancer Central is I really want to become the go-to place to find cancer information support. That's the target. You know, who are those local services and businesses? Who are those local Facebook groups? Where's the insurance products now? What should you be taking when you're feeling sick? You know, what happens post-active treatment and I'm feeling blue? What about all the exercises you can do now? And can I go off and do things? There's so many incredible businesses, services support out there. But how do you find them? Predominantly, most people can't afford SEO. Um, they're on page 65. They're a small little group. And this is the stuff we want to surface. It's still taking time finding this stuff. Like we've got fun. 
finding the content. So we're pivoting the way we find com content. We're going through another pivot at the moment. Um, but uh, what we've done is we've created around a little search engine called Ask Out. Uh, a little chat bot that uh, you can talk to. Her. You can ask her a joke, by the way. Uh, let me know what you think to the answer. But, you know, you can have a little conversation with her. She's hooked up to NHS data. So if you want to know information about cancer, we'll take you straight there and then you can find. Um, so uh, the, the big thing that I want to do a shout out to um, is uh, soon we'll be announcing it, um, that it will be 60,000 donated hours from over 250 individuals and 50 organizations. And I keep trying to sort of get my head around it. You know, we've, on our website, it says 55,000 donated hours during April, we'll announce it's 60,000. And this is people in their spare time helping the whole platforms being donated from the coding to the branding, to the policies, to the ideas. It's about coming together to create this source of information. And I just feel very blessed with my network and support that I've had. And we'll continue to grow and push this so we can make it easier to find information and support. And um, just thinking about that support, um, are the NHS interested uh, in how do they support you? Do they Are they interested in, in sort of uh, contributing or because when I when I sort of look for health information we, we to bring this all together nicely we are actually flying to another country for the first time in three years next week going to, to Portugal so there's the, the the flight but when we were looking at well what do we need to have in terms of Covid pass and stuff like that when we arrive in Portugal there's all manner of places to to, to look and to find information my natural inclination is to go to the NHS and, and have a look at what they've got to say, but then they push you off in other directions as, as well. So that one common place uh, makes sense. But I guess the issue is around what do people trust and what are people looking for? So if they see that NHS badge, are they more likely to trust it? It is such a... You're absolutely right, Paul, to be honest with you. But then we need to remind people what the NHS is there for. You know, they're there for our medical needs to understand things to take us through the treatment not deal with the consolidation of information of which you know is in addition to the auxiliary services and support that we actually need um you know actually it's i know they'd love to but they've got to focus on treatment they've got to focus on the research plans they've got to focus on making sure they get you through um you know the scans and and everything else that that you need to do um, so certainly we've been working with NHS Digital, that's where we're pulling the information and we've worked with them in terms of, um, you know, sort of that. I'd love to work with them more, obviously, like, like anything. Um, and we were very, very blessed. Just a very quick, small story. I mean, actually, AskAB is on the NHS Scotland website. Um, not our cancer AskAB uh, chatbot, but we delivered a managed service with our engineering partners during COVID-19 to help them with their vast call volumes and, and 111 uh, situation. So, you know, we it's been wonderful to sort of work with the NHS. I look forward to working with them more, but it is that trusted information. And I think there does come a point as well, at what point is it trusted and at what point do you let people have, you know, it's their own life and their own decision. You know, there, there comes that point where, you know, certainly when I when I was going through things, you know, I'd get these leaflets and it's like, here, here's five options for you. And I'd look at it and go, lovely. Uh, is that it? Uh, is there anything else? Actually, I want to know all 10. 
Uh, and it's my personal choice what I go with. It's my personal risk. And, and I think there is also an angle here where from an individual perspective, we all have different risk, you know, uh, appetite. Uh, and I think it's important we give choice as well. So there's a fine line what that path is, Paul. We're still all learning it. But um, certainly that's that's where my thought process is. Now I can see I can see the, the the next one and the next one. I think we discussed the other day, didn't we? You know, I've recently um, lost my dad to dementia. And again, looking at the information and trying to find out, well, this is the symptom or this is this is happening to him. And, and where do I go and find that information? so many places out there and to have that that sort of central place where you can uh connect with others that have been through it i think is 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 really really important and find that information that you're not necessarily going to get from the very sort of checklist website that the nhs might be in that in that instance so no well thank you well, what do you think is next in terms of you know are, are you are you sort of looking to repeat the model elsewhere or, or I'd love to, and I'm deeply sorry for your loss. It's it's a really difficult time that I would adore to. I think um, it's not me being a perfectionist, but there's a piece in the in the model we're working on in terms of the technology solution uh, that we're on our third pivot. Actually, it's really important to try change, try change, try change, and we're on our third pivot. I just want to, you know, go through a little bit more, but I'm actually feeling really confident uh you know in this next release and what we're doing there and i think from that point i think we can then really start scaling um uh, from a from a cancer perspective start really pushing this out um to let it know that it's there obviously we, we're not doing much on advertising i haven't got any money for it but anyway you know getting the message and news out there we will absolutely do once i'm comfortable that model's working really well in cancer that is absolutely the dream. It absolutely is the dream, as you say, dementia, stroke, heart attack. Something has just happened. Where do I need to go? What services are near me? I want to know the clinical information. Actually, I just want to talk to someone over a cup of tea. You know, I just want to watch a YouTube video on this. It's about that aggregation. And uh, we're very close to it. So I'm um, just keeping my fingers and toes uh, firmly crossed. Thanks to all the help and support from our engineering partners and the team that we've got. And then um, I'd love to branch it out. And it's it's based on what funding I can get, obviously, and, and continuing to ask for the goodwill and the fundraising we've gotten in paying and keeping the platform free. And I think that's the most important point here is um again health is the most important thing and therefore we want to keep it free of advertising and messaging charges you know it's important everyone can get access to this information wherever you are whoever you are and i'm not interested in going down an advertising model route it is not right um, so obviously you know that funding model for us is very important that makes complete sense. And you're right. I think this is one of the, the challenges, isn't it, of the sustainability of, of, of tech for good in the charity sector and also outside it as well. Um, and just wanted to echo what Paul said about that being an absolutely amazing achievement, which is obviously changing so many lives uh, across the UK and beyond. Um, it strikes me that to have done that and also the um, tech carbon wiki um, that we'll include a link to in the show notes as well, you're a really entrepreneurial person. Uh, and I've worked with so many organisations where they always say, yes, we're entrepreneurial. But actually, in practice, it's, it's quite hard to do that, isn't it, as a leader, particularly in a larger organisation? Do you have any advice for, for leaders who are keen to harness that metal and 
develop that really entrepreneurial mindset most kind I think I I was trying to think about this and it's always very hard to think about what do I actually do because you just do it (laughs) if you know what I mean it's like well let me think back on on, on what I do um and I'm very inquisitive you've got to find your inner five-year-old right why why (laughs) why um really channel that because you give things a go you've got to trial things out and see and actually start with the project you know I, I totally get it. Obviously, working uh, working at the IOBA, you know, I, I can't suddenly with everything turn on the entrepreneurial spirit, spirit, if you know what I mean. But I can in small areas and bits and pieces of projects. So identify where that's going to allow you to be more creative and push that boundary a bit more and say, hey, let's just try this out. You know, create that environment to be able to learn. And I'm not going to say the word fail fast. I'm not going to say anything learn fast. I'm not saying anything like that. Just try and learn from it, whatever pace that is. You know, there's there's no set rules here. Um, but I think that's what's really important. And I'm very open with my journey at Cancer Central in the sense that, you know, we are trying different solutions. We're trying out different technologies. We know what we want to do. We can see what parts worked. And then we change the bit that doesn't. And that's the approach that you've got to do is keep plugging away at it. Keep being inquisitive and ask those why questions. Iteration, exploration. Oh, I like that. Can I steal it? Love it. You can steal it. Yeah. Well, I was, yeah, just, I gonna, like that. I was just thinking about these. These are the, the the traits that leaders should aspire to. Um, and Zoe will probably echo in the world that we work in, digital transformation. Then often, um, those are the things that people find leaders find most difficult is how to sort of let go enough that they are willing to explore willing to, to sort of accept the ambiguity and then um, develop that that sort of entrepreneurial mindset that just says, yeah, I'll go out and we'll try it or we'll we'll try down this path. And if it doesn't quite work out, then we'll come back and we'll think rethink it. Um, I think sometimes leaders uh, look for, for definites. Um, and certainly in our world, the, the digital world, there, there really aren't any because it's changing so fast, not because you can't do something one day to make it work but that it will change and it will iterate and the the next version will come along so i think that's the that's the 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 takeaway there so what what sort of what are the aspects of your sort of entrepreneurial mindset that you would recommend to leaders that they they sort of explore and try to take on if i may i can't stand the word transformation am i allowed to say that i mean seriously it implies this end state are you never going to get there And there's this bizarre thing that, right, we're going to spend millions of pounds in two to three years and then we're going to finish and I can go back to normal. No, no. (laughs) It's just like that continuous improvement is so important. Um, And certainly, you know, it, it might be you want to work out where your risk profile is. I mean, certainly in startup lands, a little bit different from corporate space where you've got existing customers and clients. And it might be you, you know, you do something a little bit more entrepreneur. In, uh, hang on, what's the word again? Entrepreneur. That's the right one, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, entrepreneur. You can tell I haven't had too much tea today. Uh, yeah, get your entrepreneurs go. And you can, you know, you might want to start with something internal. If you don't want to affect the end customer, things like that, just see how that goes and learn the some techniques and then actually reinvent something. You do have some trusted customers and, and members and things like that. So, you know what? You interested in trying something out for us? 
you know, it would be great to get your feedback. We want to do that. Just be open about it. The openness is what people appreciate. Not, this is all finished, you know. Um, the one thing I will say, um, and it's just something I've observed, um, and I'm not close to this, so apologies for anyone in the public service, but you don't seem to move on from the word beta. Uh, so, you know, it, 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 you know, just just keep iterating and just saying, you know, we're just giving this a go and and uh, take it from there. Music's my ears, Zoe, yours? Mine too, absolutely. Um, and, and speaking of that shift in mindset, one of the things that we talked about when the three of us caught up the other day was something which I think affects pretty much all the leaders I know, but doesn't get talked about very often, which is imposter syndrome. And we were just talking about digital transformation and so many people when they're going through that really challenging phase of digital change uh, often feel that. I know certainly that I feel that sometimes. Do you have any tips for, for leaders when they are grappling with their inner imposter? Oh, gosh. Um I, I really do feel that. And I, I think certainly the, the way the world moves on with technology, I don't know about you, I turn around and something, there's a new approach or there's a new tool or there's a new way of doing things. And I'm like, oh, I've not heard of it. I don't know what to do. Um, so you've always got that, you know, regardless of what role you're in, you kind of have this expectation on yourself that you're really supposed to know. I mean, it's okay that you don't. And we always have this moment. I mean, for me, um, creating a book as a fundraiser for Council Central, and it's absolutely incredible. We've had over 80 technology leaders contributing towards it. And half of me is like, do you think people want to buy the book? Will they be interested? You know, I go to a speaking event and I go, what would people want to learn from me? Well, you know, it's like this whole podcast. I hope this got some takeaways. Do I sound strange? You know, what's interesting? So you always got that little voice, haven't you? Sort of constantly sort of nagging you. And I'm going to I'm gonna refer to one of my favourite quotes. And this quote is incredibly dear to my heart because I found it when I was going through chemo, actually. So um, it was found in one part of my life, but I felt it was so appropriate going forward as I continued on with my career. And it's from Bethany Hamilton. And she says, courage doesn't mean you don't get afraid. Courage means you don't let fear stop you. So my advice is give it a go. You only live once. That's beautiful, Avril. Thank you. I can't think of a more perfect note to end on from such an inspiring woman and someone I admire so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, the end of that conversation left us pretty speechless and inspired. We hope that it has done the same for you too. Avril really shows us that you can achieve amazing things if you have the drive and purpose to do so. So we'd love to hear if her words have inspired you and anything that you'll do differently as a result of listening to our discussion with her. Isn't Avril amazing? It was a genuine pleasure to talk to her and to share her work with all of our listeners. As usual, please leave us your feedback if you use a podcast app where you can rate and review. You can also share your plans, ideas or questions with us on Twitter. We're at, at Starts at the Top 1. And you can also email us at Starts at the Top podcast at gmail.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. In the meantime, take care and speak again soon. Thanks for listening. Speak to you soon.